Rock here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of Purely Functional.tv, Eric Norman. Set in New Orleans, February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's Closure, S-Y-N-C, dot com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The early bird tickets are sold out, but a new batch of tickets have been available since November 1st. For more information and register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin on February 23rd. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. And cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. Lambda Squared has been announced. Lambda Squared is a single-day, single-track, functional programming conference held in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 30th. Early bird tickets are on sale for $50 until January 7th. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda-squared.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Gus Proctor, and this week we have Sam Williams. Sam, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure, thanks for having me. So, I'm a, well, I'm the CEO of the R-Chain project now, but I'm also a PhD student at the University of Kent. I built a distributed operating system in Erlang. Yeah, and I've been working with Erlang for about eight to 10 years now, building websites, blockchain systems, and an operating system, actually two operating systems. So it sounds like you've got a lot going on, and you're at University of Kent, and there's some interesting functional background there as well with a lot of people there. Yeah. So let's just start with going back to... How did you get into software development? And we'll transition into how you got into functional programming. When I was seven or eight years old, my dad bought a very broken Windows 98, no, Windows 95 machine home from work. And it had Visual Basic 5 on it. And so I started messing around with it. And that's how I got into programming. And my first programming book was a 1,600-page Visual Basic 5 reference manual, which is probably the worst way to learn programming. But uh, yeah, that was my start. And then from there, I was just interested in how to build websites, video games and stuff while I was younger and sort of took off. And and really, it was when I found Erlang that the more exciting things started being built. So like complex web applications, that sort of stuff. And so if you start with Visual Basic 5, 
you start getting into the interest of games. Games make sense to some extent if they're simple games with Visual Basic. When it comes to building websites and the like and starting to spark that interest, what took you from Visual Basic and first <laughs> playing around with a reference manual tome to eventually moving into other languages, building websites, getting understanding with HTML and how the backend works to eventually being exposed to Erlang and doing that? So it wasn't long before I worked out Visual Basic 5 probably wasn't the best place to start. And then I started looking at PHP, which was, you know, what you used for building small websites back then. And it was after a few years of writing websites with PHP that I really felt that it wasn't capable of but actually scaling. So I, I wanted to build this project that was about essentially extracting the facts asserted in those news reports and attempt to correlate them with one another. The essential idea being that you can take a story that's happening in the world and see who's saying what about it. So you can say all the news reports say this part is true, but perhaps only a couple of media outlets say this part is true. And there was a lot of data processing that went into that. And yet PHP just wasn't adequate for that job, really. Or I'm sure you could do it, but, you know, it'd be horrendous. <laughs> so at that time, I started looking at Erlang and Haskell. I ended up picking Erlang because of the process model. And yeah, I haven't really looked back since. That was a turning point, I think. <laughs> so if you're in PHP, you're seeing some of the limitations for this new site aggregation, fact correlation. What was it that put Erlang or Haskell on your radar as possibilities? What were the things that kind of said, oh, well, I know PHP is limited, but there's all these other languages. How did you come across feeling that it was a decision between Erlang and Haskell? Well, I was interested in functional programming, but at the time I didn't know too much about it. Haskell had a very, very steep learning curve, whereas Erlang was slightly more liberal in the way it allowed you to interact with it which I think helped to be to like get started with really basic projects if there's no uh, compile time type checking, this sort of stuff, for example. You can get started with pretty basic stuff pretty quickly. But really it was, you know, I don't know how I actually first came across it. I think Erlang was going through one of its sort of periodical spikes in hype. So I might have read about it on Hacker News or something. And yeah, then it was sort of on my radar. And really this this idea that you could just spawn thousands of processes and they didn't really cost you anything, and you just sort of, you know, map things in parallel. It was just a nice way of working. And you mentioned you had some interest in a little bit of functional programming. Were there other languages that you were exposed to before you started picking up Erlang or Haskell ideas from Hacker News or whatever? What set that foundation between, or was it a straight jump from PHP, seeing some stuff, and then finding out about Erlang and Haskell and things like Hacker News or some other sites and saying, well, it's, maybe it's worth checking into those. Was there any kind of bridge in between those or was it a straight jump? Yeah. I mean, I always liked the idea of Lisp. And around that time, I played around with Scheme a bit. I actually only really ever wrote one major programming scheme, which was a sort of chess movement simulator, I suppose, which was copied from a 1965, I think basic computer manual. So it was like, you know, here are some easy programs that you can write. But I sort of ported it from imperative to functional style, which is kind of horrendous in, in retrospect. But it was an interesting introduction. And I, I sort of got the impression with Scheme 
Unfortunately, that there wasn't the best thing to use in practice, but you got quite a few of the benefits of that functional style from some other languages like Erlang and Haskell without the million braces everywhere. And then you start picking up Erlang. This is eight years ago. As you said, probably one of the interim spikes. I remember hearing some stuff somewhere about eight years ago. First exposure on my end of hearing some of these things like RabbitMQ and maybe Facebook Messenger starting to come out a little bit after that and some of these other tools. But that was before a lot of the books and Erlang got more popular with being more accessible with educational information. What was that first jump on? And how did that fit in with your mindset? Well, it actually, um, <laughs> it was Fred's book who he had on last week. Oh, maybe a while ago now. Yeah, that was how I, how I learned Erlang. And I thought that was a fantastic introduction. We actually have a few people learning Erlang at our chain at the moment. And they all use that book. It's, it's excellent. It really is. And so as you're getting into this, was that something, because you mentioned Fred, he mentioned it was a natural way of thinking for him. It made sense to him. When you're coming from playing with a little bit of Scheme, you've done some Visual Basic, you've done some PHP for web development. Was Erlang something that kind of came naturally to you? Did it make sense? What were some of those things that clicked for you and some of those things that it took you a little while to understand before it finally registered? Or was the power of Erlang that keeps you in it for eight years obvious enough from the get-go? Well, I found it all fairly intuitive. I'd spent some time writing Java code as well for Android development. And the way that Erlang just has these sort of few basic data types and everything else is just some construction built on top of that, I thought that was really nice. I didn't like the whole object system particularly. And yeah, I, there was something about it that just sort of made sense. Oh, apart from the syntax, that, that was certainly a sticking point. But the constructs of the language just seemed to gel together really nicely. And particularly the concurrency stuff, you know, there's almost nothing to learn from one perspective. You send messages and you receive messages and it, it all happens asynchronously. And that, that's really all there is to it. You just sort of read from this mailbox and it maps really nicely onto real world parallel systems. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And Joe Armstrong had a nice in the beginning of the latest edition of his Erlang book, I think. He talked about this field, and it's got a bunch of rabbits in it and humans walking dogs. And he's talking about how all of these entities are working asynchronously, and they're interacting with each other by something that's very analogous to message passing. And yeah, I, I think that analogy holds in most systems. And so you pick up Erlang because you want to build this new site, Meta Inspector. You start picking up Erlang, you start playing around with it. What was that progression? Because if you're building eventually other websites and frameworks for websites and building blockchain stuff now and distributed operating systems as well, what was that first couple of projects that you were starting to do with Erlang that started to set that foundation? Did you actually do your new website inspection and analysis or did you move on to something else and start playing with some of these other tools? What set that foundation for actually getting in and doing the deep dive as you started to approach and learn Erlang? I don't remember what my first program was, but certainly the first large program was that MetaNews system. And that, I started by sort of porting over some of the stuff I'd already done in PHP by that point. So 
that kind of gave a, a reasonable introduction, although the code was, you know, suitably horrible as ported from PHP, but, but there we go. It was the first thing I built with it properly, at least. And one of the nice things about that was, obviously, I had this big MySQL database that essentially had a list and references between words, which is how you did the sort of analysis in order to work out what a set of text is talking about, basically. And yeah, you could just plug that MySQL database into Erlang rather than PHP. And that was fairly nice. Nowadays, I would do it in a NoSQL system. But at the time, that bridged the gap quite well. But really, that was just the first major thing I tried to build with it. And it came out okay. I've always found that if you want to really learn a language, you have to have some sufficiently difficult task to make you engage with it properly. And that, that was certainly the case in this one. You know, natural language processing is not particularly easy. And then you talk about the difficult task, the fetching and pulling back websites and going and hitting a bunch of other links and doing a web crawler style thing. If you've had experience with Erlang, you can start to kind of see how that becomes an obvious fit for Erlang. When you're talking about some of this natural language processing and other stuff, where did that hard problem fall that actually pushed you into really understanding how Erlang worked and going beyond just the asynchronicity that it gives you into some of the richer features of Erlang? For a start, there was a lot of data processing, so I got it to the point where it was working, and then then I had to parallelize it. And that introduced me to, obviously, the spawning message passing system. But also on top of that, fault recovery. Because, you know, at that stage, lots of things were breaking in the system, and I still wanted it to produce some sort of useful output. It was the kind of thing where, you know, you get reports from 20 different web pages, and you don't really care if one or two of those fail. It doesn't matter too much because you have the other, you know, 18 or 19. So yeah, I just wanted it to get useful results out. And eventually that's what led me down the path of learning how to use the, yeah, fault recovery system properly. So that was, that was really interesting. And you said it clicked for you when you started understanding the ideas of Erlang through Fred's book. There's the cursory understanding that says, yeah, this makes sense conceptually. Did that pass all the way through as you're doing this project or were there other things that kind of said, well, I thought I understood this. The message passing makes sense, but in concept, I've yet to figure out how to put the messages versus function calls, do, or you mentioned the fault tolerance and recovery of that. What were some of those plateaus that you hit in learning this where you said, okay, I'm making good progress. You mentioned syntax was one of them. I had to get past the syntax, right? You get past the syntax, then you start to find some of these other things. What were some of those other things? Because I hear people have different aspects across all these different languages that whatever it is that they're working on, certain things click for people, certain things don't. Were there any other kind of things that maybe were obvious at the beginning until you actually got in and started working and they're like, oh, this isn't quite as obvious. There's more nuance here than I picked up to begin with. Yeah, certainly Fred's book gave a good sort of, uh, what would you would you say like a flat understanding, like there was no real depth to it, but I could kind of understand what the concepts were. It was then putting it into practice that, yeah, led me down the path towards being a reasonably good Erlang programmer. But I think one of the things that I first had problems with was there are certain things about the libraries and, for example, how records work that weren't so easy to start with. 
And also stuff like, I suppose, having some kind of state variable and then a recursive function that stands as your server in the system. It's really nice. Now I think about it. But when I was getting started, I think that was something that was a bit strange. And the reason I ask is doing a web crawler language processing stuff, while not inconsequential, doesn't seem to be one of those hard, tricky problems of what you're working on now of a blockchain or a distributed operating system where each core on your machine gets its own semi-kernel. And I'm trying to understand the move from where you start with just doing this meta new site to doing more web development to making the jump into these, what one would think of as gnarly problems with lots of things you have to account for versus just failing to fetch a site and doing some language processing. So, I mean, I suppose it sort of tracks my progression through university. So when I went to university, I sort of realized I wanted to build a web technology company of some kind. And I was really starting to love Erlang at that point. So it, it just seemed to make sense to branch out into website development with Erlang, or at least web application development. And that was a problem of tooling there. There were quite a few frameworks that did interesting things, but none of them just quite took my fancy. So I ended up building this system that it was built on top of yours, the yet another web server, one of the popular Erlang web servers. But it extended the eHTML syntax, which is basically a way of representing HTML in tuples and lists, so that you could add server-side functions directly in the code that would be, well, the compiled version would be sent to the client in the system. And that was really interesting because it allowed you to write sort of naturally. So you'd write the UI and you could also embed bits of server-side requests and responses right in the page, which was cool. After a few years of that, and we built quite a few applications with that system that received, you know, tens of thousands of users. After that, I was looking for something to do as a final year project at university. And I spoke to a supervisor that was interested in unikernels at the time, which are essentially this idea that you take a source program and you compile it not into a binary that, or a binary application that you run on top of an operating system. You take a program and you compile it into an operating system image itself. And then you can take this operating system image and run it on typically a virtualized environment. So Zen, yeah, or KVM or, or something like this. So that you essentially just have the application running on the hardware. And this is really neat for a couple of reasons. So there's nothing to attack. If one of these systems exposes a web server, there's no extraneous code in that kernel that's running on that machine that an attacker can use to get further into the system. There's no shell, for example, with a whole bunch of commands installed. So they're really hard to attack. And also they produce these tiny images that are like, you know, four megabytes in size, which are really easy to throw around a... um well, used to call it, perhaps we still do call it a cloud environment like Amazon EC2, rather than a 700 megabyte Ubuntu image with your program running on top of it. So I built a system as part of this uh, final year project that essentially took an Erlang program and compiled it into a runnable operating system image on top of Zen, which is how I got into the operating system development side of things. 
But I'd always had like an interest and a fascination with systems programming. I built a bunch of bootloaders and things when I was uh, younger. So this was a nice way to sort of tie back together these two strands of my um, thinking. And so you're going down this unikernel route for this final project. What does this look like? People may have not taken a computer science degree or they may be like me that never actually had a final project as part of their computer science degree. And it was just a whole bunch of set of courses. What does that look like when you're doing this? Is this you're having to learn all this stuff on your own? Did you have an advisor that was kind of giving you tips and tricks? When you're picking out the understanding the unikernel and what it takes to do this hardware, was that just relying on a bunch of previous history and courseware? Or was there some guidance that helped set you down and say, here's what unikernels are, here's what Zen is, here's how this thing works if you want to build one? Where does one go about starting to understand what that even entails? Yeah, so I was lucky enough that my supervisor for this project was Richard Mortier who was involved with the original team working on unikernels split between University of Nottingham and Cambridge and a few other places. So he knew a lot about how the system worked, but to be honest, there <laughs> there wasn't very much documentation. So it was a lot of trial and error, really. But it was a lot of fun because I got to delve into like how object file formats actually work and this sort of stuff that I sort of knew was in the background before. But having spent most of my time working on high-level Erlang stuff, I hadn't paid proper attention to. So that was really interesting. And that adventure from taking was essentially a 250,000-line C program and then a few thousand lines of Erlang on top of that and getting it all to run basically on top of bare metal was, uh, yeah, it was really fun and exciting. But to go back to the format, it was really just me doing it with my supervisor checking in occasionally see how I was getting on. But that itself was actually what led me to um, my PhD project. So Erlang obviously has a huge focus on distribution. And it struck me that you should be able to build an operating system where processes and applications stretch across many different machines fairly easily in a system like Erlang, or at least it, the model would fit very well. And at that time, yeah, I got thinking about that, started applying for places to do a PhD. Yeah, and that's that's sort of how I got into um, well building Hydros, which was the second Erlang operating system I looked at. And so you're just looking at to begin with a unikernel that's Erlang and sounds like a fair bit of C code under the covers. Assuming for other speed or just other processing or interoperability to some of the assembly language that you might have to be doing interacting with on your virtual environments. So the 250,000 line program was the Beam, essentially, which is the uh, virtual machine that Erlang uses. So what we were doing was porting the Erlang virtual machine so that it ran on top of native hardware pretty much directly with, en with nothing in the middle. And then Erlang programs run on top of that in the Erlang environment. And it's really nice because it essentially, it sort of lowers the stack of things you have to run in order to deploy an Erlang program in practice. So typically, if you deploy an Erlang program on Amazon EC2 or something like this, there'll be the hardware, and then there'll be Zen, and then there'll be your operating system. And then on top of your operating system, there'll be Erlang. And then finally, inside that is your Erlang program. And that's a pretty hefty stack of software if you just want to deploy like a few hundred line Erlang program. 
So this model was nice because it, it took that stack and it just said, well, okay, forget the operating system in the middle. Let's just run it directly. So then essentially the Erlang virtual machine environment in some regards becomes your operating system. And then we took this further with Hydros because then we got rid of Zen. So we said, well, now you've just got your Erlang environment running on top of the hardware. And then your program runs in that, which is very similar to if you're running a native, say, Linux application. So it's sort of squishing down the layers when we're thinking about it. Okay, and that makes sense. And I wasn't necessarily thinking that that C program that you were rewriting was the Beam. I wasn't sure how much of that was other C programs that handled things like file descriptors and looking at where the file system is and where that file resides on disk and the drivers and everything else that you might be needing just to be able to even read your program or read a template file or something else that you're doing. So that's why I wasn't sure where that balance was. So you were able to actually take advantage of a lot of Erlang out of the box then with after you just moved the beam over? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the really nice thing about, well, <laughs> nice in some regards, not so nice in others. The thing about Erlang is that it's been ported to so many different environments that it's pretty much a self a standalone system at this point. So one of the things we did is we went into the configuration file and we just found everything that said, okay, has this function, and we just set it to no. And then we tried to compile it and see what it called that it didn't have. And it turns out there's really not that many functions. So for Hydros, which is really just Erlang on top of hardware, there's no operating system, we stubbed out all of the functions that were called, so the standard library functions, during boot up. And then, yeah, we made the stubs so that they would print to the screen and hang. And we essentially recompiled it and ran it on a machine until we um, implemented enough of the stubs in order to get it to actually function properly. And it turned out you only needed about 13 or 14 functions, C functions, at an operating system level to support Erlang running just on the hardware. And actually, of those, almost all of them were. Um, inconsequential or very minor. So one was, you know, get the name of the operating system it's running on. One of the ones that strangely it does need that I was a little surprised about was Quicksort. For some reason, the Erlang Beam uses Quicksort when it boots up. Not really sure why. But apart from that, you know, it's just memory allocation, memory deallocation. That's pretty much it. And it's interesting because my first exposure to even hearing about Erlang were people selling it as you've got this whole operating system there, essentially, that knows how to manage and schedule processes and garbage collect and do a bunch of this other stuff. And this is software that was running on phone switches. And the fact that you're taking it back and putting it to actually run on bare metal hardware, in a sense, sounds intriguing and interesting. And the fact that it's kind of going back to its origins as this piece of software that's running on some of these hardwares. And I'm just wondering, as you're finding this stuff, if you're finding these 13, 14 functions, is this something that becomes almost a larger project, in a sense, that says Hydros is almost the framework versus just the ability to run it that says, now if you can run on Hydros, all you need to do is implement these 14 functions that represent this. So if you wanted to run it on some proprietary hardware or some specific chip that's not necessarily in Intel or AMD-based chip, but maybe an ARM-based chip or something else, whatever that is, 
is that where the Hydros project is kind of focused? Where is, I guess, two parts. What is the Hydros project at a high level and where is it used and where does it diverge from just running these Erlang systems on the bare metal? So the answer to that is that we're interested in hardware fault tolerance at the operating system level. That is tolerance to the failure of hardware by the operating system while it runs and continues to run. So we're thinking of things like core failures in multi-core machines, potential RAM failures, this sort of stuff. So our fundamental idea was really a question of how much of the machine could we have fail and still have the operating system continue to function properly. That was the research question, I suppose, rephrased. And how it differs from just, say, taking Erlang, putting it on top of a core and saying, this is an Erlang computer, is it uses what's called a multi-kernel approach. So basically, instead of treating your machine as if it's one machine with multiple computing units inside, what you do is you split the machine up. Well, you, you say... Okay, each core in this machine is essentially its own machine, its own computer. And you allocate each of those cores an area of RAM. And then essentially they run independently. And what we did here was we ran one Erlang Beam instance per core in the machine. And they would all run pretty much in isolation, only talking to each other very irregularly, typically actually about just running client programs. So programs of the user. The nodes in the system really don't have to communicate with each other very much at all. And the nice thing about this is that if the hardware that one of the nodes in the system was running on fails, then it doesn't affect the other nodes in the system. They can continue executing as normal. And because we have Erlang's fault recovery system, essentially what you can do, well, you just recover from it in the usual way. So if your Erlang program is written in a sort of sensible Erlangy fashion. It'll just deal with the failure of some of the hardware in which it's running, if it's running in this environment, essentially automatically. And so this is interesting or useful for environments where it's basically very hard for a human to go and do maintenance on it. So one of the things we were looking at was weather stations that are very far from human civilization, maybe three or four days by canoe or whatever you know, really difficult places to access. You want those machines to just continue running pretty much <laughs> as long as you possibly can without human intervention. So having those machines be multi-core and having them have multiple sticks of RAM and running Hydros on it and then your application inside that, yeah, could allow you to essentially avoid that very expensive maintenance for a long time. And is this something that's seen as... A more general project? Is there a place that this fits in, in the worldview of some of this stuff? And is this something, you've mentioned the weather stations, but is this a replacement for unikernel stuff where you can say, look, I want to take this Erlang program, I want to wrap it up, and I want to put it anywhere that I can treat it as hardware, as a kernel, in a unikernel sense, or I want to put it directly on these small little boards with chips and RAM that become my weather station versus there's also the nerves project from the Elixir side, but that runs on a Linux system. Where's the balance of where the interesting usage of Hydros is once you establish that you want to handle the fault tolerance of hardware? 
Yeah, so I think most of the realistic use cases for that are in the area of embedded systems or systems that are just running one or two programs. But there could certainly be others too. To some extent, the work was sort of in the wider context of attempting to build Erlang on metal across many machines. That was really where we wanted to go with it. Because, again, you know, Erlang is so much like an operating system itself that it would just be nice if we could have that a reasonable, modern, distributed operating system, I suppose. And one of the particular places that I wanted to take this, although I, I don't think I'll get the opportunity now, it was it's always bothered me that you have a whole bunch of personal devices. So you have your laptop, you have a desktop, perhaps, you have your phone, maybe a tablet, and all of these systems run different operating systems. And none of those operating systems talk to each other very well, which means that even though I have a desktop, and a phone with a camera and a microphone attached, if I wanted to do a Skype call, I couldn't access those resources because they're not physically attached and there's no proper interface for it. So where I really wanted to go with the whole thing was to build an operating system that was distributed across your personal computing devices, essentially providing a bridge and making it so that they all run in the same shared environment, which Erlang seemed like a perfect match for. That also seems to have some interesting ideas, implications around the fact of managing some of these session processes that one might use a screen or Tmux or another virtual environment that says, well, if I want to keep this running, I got to make sure I don't shut this computer down when I could just kind of transfer some of these minor background tasks, given that it might be running on a phone or some other smaller device, but I want to keep keep doing what I'm doing at least enough to make some progress, even if my main machine shuts down. So that sounds interesting in the long term for things to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, process mobility in this proposed system was going to be quite important. So I think it would be reasonable to have one email application that I use both on my phone and on my desktop. And it would also be reasonable for that application to maintain state between the two environments. So you're writing an email on your phone and then you get home and you want to finish it off on a computer. I don't see any reason that uh, you shouldn't just be able to essentially continue typing, or at least if the computing environment was set up in a way that was friendly to the user, I think that's what would happen. And the same goes for basically every other type of application. And yeah, Erlang's process model would be a great way of achieving that. And it almost seems like we have this with the larger cloud and other applications slash services via things like Evernote or Gmail, which do background syncing or do other kinds of things. But to be able to have your own kind of mini personal cloud for some of this stuff seems like an interesting idea that says all my devices are meshed and they all act as one part of the larger system. And I don't have to go to an outside service to get this feature functionality and I can own all my data and be responsible for it. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly what I would call hacks around the edge of this problem. So like, I think Apple have a sort of system that allows you to, you know, sync your drafts or whatever it is between phone and desktop environments, which is reasonably good. But that's a single instance of the problem, I would say. And I think there's a wider issue that needs to be solved. And I think, you know, within 10, 15 years, we'll, we'll have a solution to that, but we'll have to see. Interesting things to think about. And that leads into, I think, some of the other things I want to discuss, which is your R-Chain stuff. But before we get there, 
Is there anything that we've touched on that we need to revisit? We haven't covered in depth before we start talking about our chain, or is there anything else that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up at at a high level at some point? No, I, I think that's a pretty good coverage of it. Okay, then let's talk a little bit about the Archain project you're involved with, because there seems to be this thread here that you've got these projects around, and some of that's just the distributed system, some of it's a little bit more finer grain, but if we're talking about this distributed operating system being able to share this context, share an email, share these actions that have started to happen between computers and be able to resume it once, you've got Archain, which is based off blockchain technology, but written in Erlang. So I guess to start with, what's Archain? And give a high-level overview of blockchain for people who may not understand really what blockchain is about, other than hearing the terms around things like Bitcoin or Ethereum, possibly. So a blockchain is essentially, well, it's composed of two parts, typically. There's a peer-to-peer network that runs in the background using some sort of a gossiping algorithm for spreading messages between machines. And then on top of that, the machines in the system negotiate a data structure, which is essentially a system of cryptographically linked blocks. That is, you get a bunch of transactions that are sent around the system, and the transactions don't have to be financial. In the case of Ethereum, their computational state and in the case of our chain, it's archived data. These transactions are sent around the system, and then miners in the system, who are people that are, how would you say, maintaining the decentralized system, I suppose. They collect these transactions, and they all attempt to complete a proof-of-work system, or they compete to complete the proof-of-work for a given block the fastest. And the person that does collects up all the transactions and puts them into a new block, which they cryptographically link with the old block by including the hash of the previous block. And then they distribute that to other people in the network and they start mining on the next block. And this essentially continues indefinitely. But what it allows you to have is essentially a decentralized permanent record of transactions that you know have not been modified at at any point in the state because the cryptography will essentially allow you to verify it. So the Archain project is essentially a blockchain-like data structure on which you can store information. So the key difference here is that typical blockchains require every node in the system to maintain their own copy of the entire blockchain, whereas what Archain does is it allows you to shard that data structure across many different computers. And in doing so, that data structure can grow to like extremely large sizes. And yes, so you can use it for archiving data. And of course, that archiving has the same permanence characteristics that a typical blockchain does. So it's essentially just a way of storing data permanently and unmodifiably. And then for a little bit of clarification on my end, at least, I've got a very, very, very cursory understanding of blockchain, but I picture it as a distributed ledger, So, which makes me think of distributed source control systems like Mercurial or Git with maybe some kind of voting system with where the miners come in for agreement that this thing happened. And I guess that's that proof of work that gets computed. But there's also CRDTs, the Community of Replicated Data Structures. 
where do those high level concepts fit in in regards to how blockchain is actually done? And where are some of those fine lines between if I try and just think of blockchain as a fancified CRDT or a distributed ledger, whether everybody holds it and has to agree on it or not? Yeah, so certainly systems like Git and so on have some characteristics of blockchain-like systems. But where it crucially differs is in this proof-of-work consensus system. So you essentially have a constant hashing competition going on, which is that you're taking all the transactions in the open block in the system, and you're attempting to find a random number that hashes with all those transactions and the hash of the previous block in order to generate a new hash, which has a certain level of difficulty, it's called. And difficulty is simply, it starts with a number of zeros. So say if the difficulty is two, or you're looking for a random number, which when conjoined with all of that data, produces a hash that starts with two zeros, or four, four zeros, and so on. And this essentially controls, well, it regulates the speed of finding blocks in the system, regardless of how many miners there are. So even if there's a huge amount of hashing power, that simply means that the difficulty will increase, leading to more hashes but the same number of blocks. And yeah, I suppose that's sort of one of the fundamental differences. And so you're trying to do an archival strategy and distribute this ledger as well. Where, I guess, and how does that fit in if everybody doesn't need to know the whole history, but you can shard it? How is it determined about the sharding? And is it just these are all different slices of this archival? Or how does one think about splitting out the sharding of this transaction history versus just copying it around everywhere? Yeah. So the archiving itself happens on the distributed ledger in our chain. And we essentially incentivize people to hold old blocks in the system by including them in the calculation of the new blocks. So each time you have a block, a pseudo-randomly generated number will be found that corresponds to one of the previous blocks in the system, meaning, well, which we call the recall block. So then when you mine the next block, you include the recall block, as well as the other information that you typically include in blockchain-like systems that we discussed a second ago. And the effect of this is that you can only take part in the mining of the n plus oneth block if you have block n block n minus one, and then the recall block for block n. And that's really critical because it means that you can essentially mine productively on the chain for the proportion of the blocks in the system that you have stored. So if you store 1% of the block weave, as we call it in the R-Chain project, then you can mine on the system for about 1% of the time, typically. And this is really nice because it incentivizes people to store parts of the block weave that aren't well mirrored by other people. And the reason for this is if you're the only person with the recall block, you're essentially guaranteed the block reward that you get for mining the next block because nobody else will compete with you in the hashing competition. But if you hold a recall block which is chosen, which thousands of other miners have, then there's a much greater competition in the mining stage which means that you're incentivized to choose those blocks that other people aren't storing, which, when looked at from the network level, essentially leads to an even coverage of the blocks in the system. And then, given that this is more for archival of information, what kind of information 
Is this hoping to archive? Is this the distributed file system store that some people talk about? Is this other transactional information that gets built on it? It sounds like it could be relatively generic, but where does our chain come in with archiving the information? So certainly at one level, the fundamental technology is very generic. It's just if you want to store something for a very long time, you can do it on this system. But the first application that we're looking at is actually an internet archive. So essentially how this works is that people install a web extension and they find web pages that they'd like to archive. They pay a small number of R, the currency used in the system, and the data is just put onto the block weave so that it can be recalled later. And you can say, okay, I can verify that at this time, on this date, the contents of this web page is as it is which is useful for a number of things. But one of the places we're most interested in it is essentially recording things that are important for human history and human experience. So we've noticed that a lot of geopolitical events and political events tend to, to happen online by default nowadays. So this North Korean hack of the NHS, for example, the WannaCry virus, this was an event that primarily took place on the internet. And we think that's really interesting because you can hoover up parts of the internet and store them indefinitely. So you can essentially you know, store reproducible parts of human history if you do this correctly, which we think is quite exciting. And it also sort of fundamentally solves this problem of, I don't know if you've read any Orwell, but what we call the Orwellian memory hole, this idea that you can take parts of history and you can destroy all the evidence relating to them. And then after that moment, no person could ever truly verify what happened on such and such a time and such and such a date. So, yeah, we think if you cryptographically entangle all of this information together, such that none of it can be altered, you'll be able to look back in a hundred years time, say, and say, for sure, this is at least what this news outlet, for example, said about an activity on a certain date, a certain time. And because it's all cryptographically linked together, it's impossible for that data to be removed. So essentially a signed version of the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, where it's also distributed across a bunch of people wanting to participate in this and say, if we go back, we can see the history of this site or the history of this article and see how it's been changed and what they may have updated that they claimed has an update versus what they've updated that does not have an update kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's a signed and decentralized version of that. But also there's another element of consensus in it that's rather nice, which is at the time of archiving, the decentralized system comes to consensus about what the contents of the web page is. And this means that it can't possibly have been tampered with at the time it was entering the archive even. So there's a problem with these kind of systems where you essentially just have to trust that the user isn't going to forge it and say, oh, yeah, CNN did say this on this date. That doesn't happen in the system because you get global decentralized consensus about what's being said at the time it's stored in the archive, which obviously you don't get with, uh, say, the Internet archive, where you really just have to trust that they're being honest about the way it's being stored and also that nobody's, you know, tampered with it and they're unaware of it, which is not something they can defend against at the moment. And there's some interesting thoughts there that I'm going to have to stew on. And you did give a talk about this 
just this past week and a half ago, I guess, as this episode comes out at Codemesh. So we'll point people there to find out more about that when this comes out. But I want to touch on, you've also built this in Erlang. So I'd like to see if you could give a quick overview of where you found Erlang fits into these kinds of systems well, or where you found some limitations on some of this stuff. Because I know people say, well, for cryptographics or string processing or some of this other stuff, you're punching out to probably C or the like. So where is this balance of how you found Erlang into the system and what parts work well for Erlang and what parts you're using some other interop with the Erlang systems? Well, for a start, we found it excellent. There really haven't been any points that we felt that another language would have been better. And one of the ways it particularly excelled was allowing us to simulate extremely large networks, say 10,000 nodes or so, inside a single machine long before we ever got to a sort of release day so that we can see what the emergent behavior is of these systems running at scale without actually testing it properly on a major network. And we did that by just writing a small library that sits in front of the Erlang message passing system and applies things like latency, bandwidth, packet loss, connection drops, all sorts of network effects that you're likely to find in reality. But yeah, this allowed us to test huge networks without the typical infrastructure required to do that. And we look at the way other cryptocurrencies and and blockchain systems are testing. And this is a major, major improvement. You know, we see people just starting up, say, three nodes and running it for a while and saying, oh, yeah, okay, well, it appears to be working correctly, so I'll, I'll believe it. But really, no, the Erlang process model allowed us to simulate huge, huge networks that found, you know, one in a million bugs by the bucketful and helped us fix those long before market time. So that, that was absolutely great. And from the point of view of, you know, list processing and so on, it wasn't really a problem because Erlang has built in support for binaries. And obviously this is archive data. So most of it's, you know, you don't want to do string processing with it anyway. It's just binary chunks that you're moving around, which is very efficient in Erlang. So yeah, we found that, if anything, to be um, pretty helpful. And then talking with Conrad Barsky on an episode of this, he was talking about some BitChain Ethereum concepts. So that was part of where my very, very high level of blockchain stuff comes in. But he mentioned at one point that you could push updates through the system. And Erlang being able to be running and have multiple versions of the code running at a time. So you have two versions of the code and it gets swapped through. Was there any idea or premise around how you maintain what version of logic that you're going with our chain? And did Erlang play in with that at all about being able to push out different computation algorithms if needed or fix bugs, at least in your test environments? Yeah, it's it's great being able to run like a, a simulated network and then implement a fix and just <laughs> push it out to a thousand simulated miners in the system. They all just sort of respond and uh, update. It, it's very nice. It's a nice way of working. And so we're coming up on time, but I want to make sure because I'm so far removed from some of this blockchain stuff, is there anything important about our chain we didn't manage to cover or manage to do justice in explaining with it just because of lack of prompting you for the right questions? Well, I suppose one thing to mention is that it's a platform on which you can write other decentralized applications. So 
we've noticed this pattern emerging, which is people are very, very excited about the idea of decentralized program execution on Ethereum. But nobody's actually built any killer applications that people outside the cryptocurrency community want to use. And we think that's um, potentially down to, well, really the limitations of decentralized computation itself. So it has to be negotiated between all of the actors in the system. It's very difficult to get data in in the first place. So we've taken a sort of different approach whereby we allow people to build applications in their typical way. So that can be either with Erlang or HTTP calls, well, or rather in their, their favorite language, but then using HTTP calls to just put the data involved in the system onto the R chain. And then you can essentially just boot up multiple versions of this application running in whatever language you like. And they're all sharing the same decentralized data structure. So you get almost all of the benefits of decentralized application design, but you use whatever language you like, you write it with whatever tools you like. It's just a lot simpler. And we, we're really hopeful that that'll lead to people building an exciting new wave of decentralized applications. And we mentioned a number of your projects. We mentioned your web framework. We mentioned Hydros. We mentioned some of that unikernel stuff you were starting to play with. We mentioned Archain. Are there good resources for there for people to go out and find out more about those? And then are there any other good resources that you would recommend people towards for understanding more about blockchains, be it cryptocurrency or not, or just the fundamental principles so they understand some of these ideas when it comes to being interested in the idea of R-Chain or other things? So you can find out about the R-Chain project at rchain.org, the Hydros project at hydros-project.org. But unfortunately, I don't really have a, a good resource that I would point people to to get up to speed with blockchains. I assume if you Google it, you'll find some good stuff, but it's quite disparate at the moment. You get the feeling in five years' time, there'll be a much clearer path into all of this knowledge. For now, I'm afraid I don't have a, a good recommendation. Okay, and I know there's been a couple of books on it, but it was that difference of, without having read them myself, with, are they just targeting blockchains or are they targeting cryptocurrencies and the potential for taking advantage of cryptocurrencies either through mining or through the benefit of what a cryptocurrency might bring at the level of a distributed currency that's not tied to any one institution. But I don't know if about blockchain in particular. So I've not encountered anything that uh, I think is a really good introductory overview. I mean, probably, realistically, <laughs> nowadays. Wikipedia will give you a, a solid starting point so you can start sort of expanding out into the areas like what proof-of-work algorithms are and so on. There's typically a lot of good information on those pages. And we mentioned your CodeMesh talk that you just gave, and we'll get that in the show notes, or at least a link to the talk page for the show notes. And if the videos come out soon enough, we'll get those included as well. But are there any other places or references besides the project pages that people should check out that you're involved with, or where can people find you online? On GitHub, Sam Cam Williams on Twitter, at Archain Team. But apart from that, no, I, that's... And I'll get those included in the show notes. And then you just came back from CodeMesh, but do you have any other appearances that you're going to be at if people want to find you in person that you know of? I expect I'll be at the Erlang User Conference, or they've changed the name now, haven't they? I think they call it uh, something about Beam now. The Code Beam, I think, is the new name for the Erlang factories. And then there's the still Erlang User Conference, maybe? 
Oh, okay. Well, the, the main Erlang user conference in Stockholm 2018, I'll be there, I'm sure. So yeah, great to talk to people then. And then we'll make sure to get all those links and places so people can look for you online or in person. Brilliant. Thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Sam, for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking with you, enlightening to see what some of the work is in some of this distributed systems, distributed operating systems, and getting a little bit more of a better feel about what the blockchain process is and how it works, other than a cursory rough approximation and equating it to CRDTs or Git, but knowing that there is a some kind of proof of work. But thanks for giving your time to join me today and giving this and... I'll probably have to get you on to give some deeper dives into some of these things in the future and help expand that understanding for myself and the audience. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been great. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.